Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Bible app, Bible. This morning, we're still pausing our study in the book of Acts. We're, we're continuing this sort of mini-series leading up to Easter where we're focusing on some key things that happened in the life and ministry of Jesus that led to his crucifixion and resurrection. I've titled our study today, The Heralding of Our King. And if you're, of our, of our King, and if your name is Harold, I'm sorry. No, I'm just kidding. The Heralding of Our King. Our main text is Luke 19. No, I'm not sorry that your name is Harold. I'm just sorry if it, you're offended by me. Anyways, moving on. Bad joke. Our main text is Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. If you guys have been coming to the church, you already know. You're like, yeah, Jared, we get it. You're weird. See, as we head into Holy Week or Passion Week this week, starting today, where we'll be reminded of Jesus' last week of his earthly life and ministry before his crucifixion and burial and resurrection. Today we're going to see the significance of Palm Sunday and why we celebrate it. And while there's going to be a lot of rejoicing taking place on this specific day from crowds of people who were excited about Jesus, this was also a really tragic and sorrowful day as we'll see Jesus weeping and broken over the state of the Jewish people as many were completely blind to what he was fulfilling on Palm Sunday. And I pray today, even as we see these different prophetic elements of what Jesus fulfilled on this day, on Palm Sunday, that even this morning, you and I would have our faith bolstered, that we would have even greater confidence in who our God is. Because as Jesus said at one point in his ministry, I'm telling you these things so that when they come to pass, you may believe. Now, these prophetic aspects of Scripture are there for you and me to actually have our belief, our faith in Jesus strengthened even more that we look back at these things and see their fulfillment, and, and it strengthens us to have an even greater confidence that the God who spoke these things makes good on what he says. Not just true of these things pertaining to the Messiah, but for our lives, these exceedingly great and precious promises throughout Scripture are things that you and I can go, if he said it, He's going to do it. Amen? All that in mind, let's begin by reading Luke 19, verses 28 through 36. Starting in verse 28, it says, When he said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it, wave your hand in front of their face and say, this is not the donkey that you are looking for. No. <clears throat> All the Star Wars fans in attendance know what I'm talking about. Anyways. If anyone asks you, why are you loosing it, thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Verse 32, so those who were sent their way went and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. What we see in these verses is that there was a divine sort of preparation that had taken place as Jesus headed into Jerusalem for a final time before his arrest and crucifixion and burial and resurrection. And up to this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, he's really avoided every attempt that people have made to, de to try and declare or push him to a place of open recognition that he is the Messiah 
and king. Because as Jesus would say several times in the gospel accounts, his hour or his time had not yet come, which makes it super clear that Jesus was working on a divine timetable. You see these moments in Jesus' earthly life where Jesus was operating in this realm where, where though he was living out this physical existence, there was this prophetic sort of thing that God was doing behind the scenes that needed to be fulfilled at specific points, not just throughout human history, but in Jesus's earthly life. And I love these moments where we see that Jesus was just tuned in in a way that you and I really never are. One of those moments for me is with Zacchaeus, and Jesus is traveling in, and it says he gets to this certain point, and that he looks up. So it wasn't even like he saw Zacchaeus from afar up in the tree, trying to get this view of Jesus, but that Jesus just knew, okay, you need to be right at this place. You stop there. I'm going to look up. There's Zacchaeus. I'm going to call out to him, and I'm going to say, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Like, Jesus would invite himself over to dinner at someone else's house. That's, you know, Jesus loved to eat with people. So do I. Anyways, Jesus was working on this divine timetable. And understand, it wasn't that Jesus was reluctant to take on his rightful place or title as Messiah or, or, or king, or that he was avoiding his responsibility. Instead, it was an issue, again, of timing. Jesus was so intentional and specific about what he did and when he did it. And this was especially important because of all the prophecies that he had to perfectly fulfill in his first coming. See, if Jesus had only fulfilled some or most, but not all prophecies concerning his first coming, then we couldn't really trust him. We would always be left wondering, well, Jesus, you did like 98%, but there was this 2%. Or Jesus, you did 99.9, but there was this 0.01% that, you know, you didn't do. We would be left wondering, well, okay, Jesus, you came through on this and this and this, but are you, are you really going to come through? But none of us can look back and come away with anything less than, Jesus, you did everything. Everything written of your first coming. You fulfilled everything perfectly. You did everything exactly. As Old Testament prophecy predicted about you, you did it. So that we today could go, he's never going to fail. We even... We sing that so much, Lord, you're not going to fail. You're, you're going to be faithful. Why? Because he's always been faithful. He does what he said he's going to do. Now, looking at our text here, in, in verse 29, Jesus draws near the towns of Bethphage and, and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet. He sends two of his disciples into the village, and he gives them really detailed and specific instructions and in verse 32 it says so those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them it wasn't a confusing thing once the disciples went into the town they didn't get in there and out of the 10 homes you know nine of them had these colts these full of a donkey that were unridden and so they're left wondering which of the nine they were supposed to grab no there was no other options it was exactly as jesus told them even dealing with the people who would question why they were taking the donkey in the first place it, it was exactly as jesus said now as we sort of take in this whole scene, as we consider the importance of this sort of event here that we're getting a glimpse of, you know, we might wonder why Jesus would want a donkey in the first place instead of a horse. 
Like, why didn't he ride in on an eagle? Like, there could have been a lot of things that I would have chosen, me personally, I would have chosen over, think about it. It's a foal of a donkey, and we're told specifically in one of the accounts that it had never been ridden. You don't want to ride something that's never been ridden before. Why? Because the thing won't do what you want it to do. That donkey would be all over the place. It lay down on you while you're you're riding it. Jesus wanted that specific animal. Because the donkey was never known as anything less than a peaceful sort of animal to be riding in on in this sort of context. If Jesus had ridden in on a horse, they could have gotten the wrong impression of what Jesus was coming in to do. Oh, he's coming in to do battle. What if Jesus had come in with armor? Be like, ooh, Jesus, is a, he's a warrior. But Jesus didn't come in on anything like that. He came in on this donkey with clothes for a saddle, with palm branches lining the road. This, like many other things that we see Jesus do and how he operates is contrary contrary to how our world does things. And that's definitely clearly seen here in Jesus' triumphal entry. See, there had never been a truer triumphal entry than Jesus's. Yet it was the complete opposite of how the Romans in that day would return in triumph. Do you have a heading in your Bible there? If you have a physical Bible, does it say the triumphal entry there? You ever wondered why? It, I mean, that's conjecture. That's someone else putting what they see. But in the context of that day, culturally and historically, a, a triumphal entry was when these Romans would go out to battle. The general would come back in victory He would come back in a triumphal entry. He'd be riding on a a horse-drawn golden chariot. He'd be trailed by a long procession of prisoners of war that the priests would be out there with their incense, burning their incense to their pagan gods. They'd be making sacrifices to their pagan gods, and then a great celebration would happen at the arena where the prisoners that they had brought back from their victory would be made to fight wild beasts as a spectator sport and be killed. This was the traditional triumphal entry that everyone in that day would have been accustomed to. So for us, when we see that heading there in our Bibles, the triumphal entry, or we hear that term, We have to get our minds in line with this cultural, historical context to see that this isn't like any triumphal entry these people had ever seen before. You imagine the Roman soldiers looking on at all this, wondering where the horses and the golden chariot and the prisoners and the sacrifices and incenses were at? How about the hundreds of thousands of Jewish people from all over that came into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, who brought their lambs with them to sacrifice, and yet here's Jesus, our Passover lamb himself, who was going to triumph by sacrificing himself. Jesus wasn't riding a beast of war. He had no chariot. He had no army. There was no prisoners. He wasn't returning from any sort of physical battle. No, Jesus came humbly, entering in triumph because he was about to triumph at the cross where he'd give his life for us, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. But prophetically, It had to be a colt, the foal of a donkey, that no one had ever ridden on, that Jesus would then ride upon into Jerusalem on this day. This was foretold by God 
through the prophet Zechariah. Check out what we're told in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says there, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy of Zechariah's came over 500 years earlier. And it paints a scene for us. This would be a sign to the Israelites. It would be a cause for great rejoicing because it meant that their lowly, humble king, who is just, he is righteous, and notice, has salvation. Not even, hey, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring a salvation, but he has it. It's, it's something he has personally in himself. That this humble king was coming to them. Coming in on a colt, the foal of a donkey, was a deliberate move by Jesus, knowing full well what this would look like scripturally and prophetically, but doing it because that prophetic scripture from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, was meant for Jesus alone and for this specific day alone. And these people here recognize this. They knew this messianic prophecy of Zechariah. They knew what was going on and what this meant for them. Although many had a different kind of salvation in mind. Not a spiritual salvation, but a physical salvation. Deliverance from the Romans. But this is why they're going to react or respond the way that they do in verses 37 and 38. But I want to show us Matthew's parallel account of this. In Matthew 21, verse 8, we read this. It says, And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. That the spreading of their clothes on the road and spreading palm branches on the road where the donkey was walking was all a sign in that day of respect, of loyalty, of honor. And it was all part of a Jewish reception for royalty. It was a symbol even of triumph and success. But let's continue on and read verses 37 and 38. It says, then he was, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The divine preparations have led to this great outpouring of praise and rejoicing to God by this multitude. Jesus is now on the colt, and he's heading down the west side of the Mount of Olives. He's coming from the east. He had been coming from Jericho, where he had met blind Bartimaeus. He'd gone up into the Mount of Olives. He's now coming down the descent on the west side. He's going into the Kidron Valley to make his way up to Jerusalem. And, and as he goes down the descent, all these people who had been following him, the multitude of disciples begins to rejoice and, and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And when we consider how many people were following him and the kinds of things that these people might have seen, there's no doubt that they saw Jesus do mighty works. Mighty works. Maybe they saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. Maybe they got to see Jesus just right before this heal this blind man named Bartimaeus who throws off his cloak and begins to follow Jesus and at the tail end of his ministry, maybe they saw Jesus at different moments who 
healed lepers or, you know, made the deaf to hear. They saw Jesus do mighty works. And you can imagine if that was you in their shoes, you would be praising God with a loud voice. This is your time. This is the moment. Jesus is finally coming in. He's going to He's going to make all things right for us. Many of these people were convinced that Jesus was truly the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the true king of Israel who would deliver and save, that Jesus was the one they had been waiting for. And for them, this day was the greatest day of their lives. It was a day they had hoped would come in their lifetime. Finally, their Messiah was here. He's going to take his rightful place. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to bring freedom to the Jewish people who were living under Roman occupation and oppression, or at least that was their hope. There was thousands of years of prophetic and national anticipation leading up to this moment. This isn't like you and I waiting a couple months to like go do something fun. It's not even us waiting two years to like have some restrictions lifted. As most of us didn't have that much anticipation with that even because we're like, yeah, we'll see. Thousands of years. I mean, think about it. In the beginning, there's a prophecy given about the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Even then, thousands of years earlier, there was this anticipation that one day the seed of the woman would come and he'd crush the devil. And then over time, that more revelation was given of, oh, this, there's going to be a Messiah. He's going to be the king. He's going to be wonderful counselor. He's going to be mighty God. Oh, so this Messiah is not just a guy. He's God. He's going to come. Oh, he's not just going to come. He's going to come on the foal of a donkey. Oh, he's not just going to come on the foal of a donkey. I mean, he's going to be born of a virgin. And you think about all the revelation that happened over time. How much anticipation, if you were a Jewish person living in that day, to know that as he's coming, he's fulfilling now these prophecies. What kind of loud voices there would be. People would be losing their stinking minds. They'd be beside themselves. That just... For us to get our heads in that place, it's not just us looking back, oh, this is a great day. Jesus came in on this donkey. Look, there's palm branches, you know, traditionally on Palm Sunday. We're thinking the palm branches, those so nice. We don't even know what the palm branches really stand for. We just, we said, we wave them, and they're great. We could fan yourself with them. Oh, there was, all of this was this homecoming for the king that they'd been waiting for. The Christ was here. And in verse 38, they begin to hail Jesus as their king. As they quote from Psalm chapter 118, which is a messianic psalm. Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26 says this. It says, it says save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you. From the house of the Lord. Also, listen to what we're told in Matthew's parallel account of this. In Matthew 21, verse 9, we read this. It says, Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In their praises of Jesus, they were crying out, Hosanna. Hosanna means save, we pray, or save now. This was their shout of praise. 
pointing to Jesus, the Savior. He was the one able to save. He was just and having salvation. Save now, Savior. Do your thing. The Son of David is the one who saves, so save us. But it was also the cry and prayer of the people's hearts because they were desiring to be saved nationally and politically and situationally and, and presently. Jesus, get us out of this mess. <laughs> Jesus, do something with the situation that we're in. Save us. Save us even from ourselves. And doesn't that happen sometimes with us? We want a situational Savior. Lord, save me from the mess that I created. Save me from my bad choices. Lord, save me. Maybe it's not even you. Save me from what someone else is doing to me. Save me from the financial stress that I'm dealing with. Lord, save me from the relational strain that I'm dealing with. Lord, just save now. You know what the amazing thing about Jesus is? He, he's, a, he's a Savior that, that saves in the spiritual sense. He can do things in the spiritual for the, for the soul of a person that no one else can do but him. But he doesn't neglect the practical deliverance at the same time. There are times when you and I are in a place where we're going, Lord, I need you to intervene in my life. I need your deliverance. I need your salvation presently and practically and situationally. And have you had Jesus come through in those moments? Now you can testify for your own life. You can, you can say it from a point of praise, not just a prayer, not just a cry of desperation, but from someone who's experienced the deliverance of Jesus in your life. He does it. He wasn't going to deliver the people from the political oppression, but he was going to do something even better. It was something that the angel said to Mary, to Joseph even. He's going to save his people from their sins. You imagine getting that word about your child? He's not just going to be an honor student. You know, like, what kind of bumper sticker might they have had in those days? My child is, you know, you see sometimes the weird ones, like, my child is smarter than your child, or some weird, there's weird sticker things, like, my child saved humanity from their sins. And that was Jesus! And he did it! He's just and having salvation. Hosanna to the son of David, the one who would come from the line of David, the long-awaited Messiah, was here. Look at verses 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. That's how I imagine them saying it. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. While there were multitudes of people who were celebrating Jesus as their king, there was also these religious leaders who were criticizing and condemning the people's praise of Jesus. These Pharisees knew exactly what was happening. They knew exactly what the people were doing. And they weren't okay with it. They wanted Jesus to silence the praise of his disciples. But I love Jesus' response. Look, if these people don't praise me right now, the rocks would immediately cry out. If humanity had failed in this moment to praise Jesus, creation itself would have made sure that Jesus received his praise. Jesus is going to receive his praise. Think about all the people, even now, 
who don't want anything to do with Jesus, who will blaspheme his name, even though they don't believe in him. They don't think he exists, but they'll use his name as a curse word. You ever notice no one says, and like, they don't use Allah. They don't use Buddha. But for some reason, they want to use Jesus as a curse word. Why is that? Because there's something different about the name of Jesus. His name is the name above every other name. As Paul said in the book of Philippians, one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's going to receive his praise. For us today, we have an opportunity to praise him as as redeemed people. People who have humbled ourselves before the Lord and received his salvation, but one day, even the people who blasphemed his name, who didn't want anything to do with him, will also bow their knee and say, Jesus, you are Lord. But it'll be a place of humility. It'll be a place of shame for them in that day. Too late. Here we think about this situation we see, see here on this Palm Sunday, these people got to be involved in this amazing celebration where they were exalting Jesus openly for the first time as their king, and they were used by God to help fulfill prophecy. Pretty amazing thing. The tragic part is that the Pharisees missed out because of the hardness of their own hearts towards Jesus. But know that God has a way of fulfilling his plan. He has a way of bringing himself praise even when we are unwilling or silent. If God's able to use rocks to bring himself praise, there's no doubt he can use you and me to bring him praise too. Let's move on see what happened as Jesus drew near to Jerusalem this final time. Verses 41 through 44. Verse 41, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Understand as we read all of this, that the triumphal entry of Jesus wasn't just for the purpose of giving Jesus the praise and worship that he was due, finally hailing him as the rightful king. That was part of it, but it also went much deeper than that. Though the crowd was rejoicing, Jesus was not. We find in these verses a very sad, a very sorrowful, a very broken and grieving Jesus, weeping and pleading for the people who he greatly loved, who were missing the significance of what he was doing and who he truly was. You know, there are only two times in the Gospels where we see that Jesus wept. And this is one of those two times as Jesus drew near to the city and lamented over the state of the Jewish people, days that could have been for their peace, and yet they were blind to it, blind to him. Days were coming when enemies would come and build an embankment around the city, surround them, close them in on every side, level them and their children within them to the ground, not leaving one stone upon another. And this is Jesus speaking prophetically of what would take place a little less than 40 years after this. This happened in 70 AD when the Roman general Titus came and besieged the city of Jerusalem and killed over 600,000 Jews, destroyed Jerusalem and completely, completely dismantled their temple. But Jesus said, if you had just known that these are the things that make 
for your peace, yet they were blinded to it. There was this aspect of the people understanding certain things about the Messiah's coming, but ignoring other things. Now, according to some scholars, in Jesus' day, there were some within the Jewish nation who had come to the conclusion as they read the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament that there must be two messiahs, a suffering messiah and a conquering messiah. They, they couldn't rationalize how it could be one and the same person, and they, and they didn't like the idea, really, of a suffering messiah, so their focus was really only on the conquering messiah. They understood the prophecy of Zechariah, the, the Messiah coming in on the full of, don, of the donkey, and, and they understood them crying out, Hosanna, a fulfillment of Psalm 118, but they missed or disregarded other prophecies the Messiah, uh, regarding the Messiah that spoke about him having to suffer and die, like we find in Psalm chapter 22 and the latter part, or, latter part of Isaiah 52 and all of Isaiah Chapter 53, just to name a few places in Scripture. These were the things that would actually make for their peace, but they, they missed it. And this brought about a deep sorrow in Jesus that caused him to weep. Literally, he sobbed as he saw the city. But I want to point out in this section of verses that when Jesus in verse 42 says, this your day, and then later in verse 44 says the time of your visitation, that, that Jesus is referring to what's known as the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. I want to show you the message that the angel Gabriel brought to Daniel over 500 years earlier in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through the first part of verse 26. It says there, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Now, in the beginning of this prophecy, we're seeing a really broad prophetic timeline. Seventy total weeks. And these weeks are not speaking of a literal seven-day period, but of a seven-year period. That word week can actually speak of a unit. We're seeing a, a timeline dealing with things that would happen from the command to go and build, uh, command, command to go and build the temple, but also looking forward all the way to the millennial reign. And there are th other things in this that I'm not including in this for our study this morning, but... In regards to Jesus' triumphal entry, we're just honing in on a specific part of this prophecy. But from the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. But going on, it says that the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And that after the seven weeks and 62 weeks take place, that Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Again, these weeks are really just speaking of a seven, uh, a unit of seven, not necessarily a seven-day period, but a seven-year period. And he says there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It'll begin at the command to restore and build Jerusalem. It will end at Messiah the Prince. So seven plus 62 equals 69 total units of time, and these seven-year periods of time, which add up to 483 years. Now, really smart guy, did all this, did all the math, figured out 
what kind of calendar the Jews were using at that period in time. They were going off of a Gregorian calendar. It was a 360-day year that they were using. The command to restore and build Jerusalem, we actually know the date historically. It was given by King Artaxerxes to Nehemiah on March 14th. 445 B.C., and 483 years later by that Gregorian calendar, or exactly 173,880 days later, brings us to Messiah the Prince on April 6th, 32 A.D., which is when Jesus was hailed openly as the Messiah as he rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which was less than a week before he would be crucified, or as Daniel's prophecy said, the Messiah would be cut off or executed. So after the 69 seven-year periods, the Messiah would be cut off. He would be killed, but not for himself. Isn't that interesting? The wording there, not for himself. Why? Because he didn't die for his own benefit. He died for our benefit. And I love it that to the exact day it was fulfilled just as God told us it would ahead of time in his word. This is just another thing that reminds us how infinitely wise and all-knowing and great our God is. No one else predicts future events like our God does in his word. Why? Because if you predict stuff and it doesn't come to pass, you look like a fool. Right? The reason about one quarter of the Bible is prophetic in nature is so that we would believe and take God at his word. These Pharisees prided themselves in knowing the word of God, and yet they missed it. If they could have looked past all their tradition and religiosity and their resentment of Jesus, they were envious of him. Pilate even noted that they would have seen that Jesus was indeed the Messiah they had been waiting for. Seen that all of prophecy clearly pointed to Jesus, and yet they missed it. This was their day. This was the things that would make for their peace, the time of their visitation. But their pride kept them from believing in Jesus, and this is why Jesus was weeping. Jesus, the, the Prince of Peace, wanted to bring people into relationship with the Father, that they would make peace with God through faith in Him. But that peace can only come through receiving Jesus' free gift of salvation, which He was, which he was about to provide through His death on the cross. And while Jesus received praise from a crowd of people on this Palm Sunday, in just a matter of days, as we'll look, out, look at it on Good, Fr Good Friday, there would be a very different crowd around Jesus, not shouting his praise, not glorifying God because of him, but shouting for him to be crucified, shouting for a murderous rebel named Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus. Rejecting Jesus as their king and Messiah and ultimately crucifying the Son of God. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus knew what the outcome would be, and he came into Jerusalem on the donkey and allowed people to openly hail him as the Messiah king anyways. He knew his triumphal entry would be a seemingly great start, all the fanfare but that it would end tragically for him. And yet he did it anyways because he had this intense, unwavering desire to save you and me. And as we continue to consider the road to Easter, I pray that all of this draws us to a place of even greater faith and trust in Jesus, will draw us to, an, to even deeper places of love and worship of our humble king who weeps over lost humanity and loves us incredibly. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. 
Look, this morning, I want to ask us, you know, what's our reaction? What's our perspective as we look to Jesus? We saw two different responses. We saw this multitude of people who saw the mighty works that Jesus had done, and they glorified God because of him. But these other people, these Pharisees, I want us to realize something. They saw Jesus do mighty works too. They saw him do mighty works and they would say, well, he does these things by Beelzebub. They would try to attribute the power that Jesus was operating in to the devil. They saw things about Jesus that no man could do, but they rejected him. Some rejoiced in him, some rejected him but what about us what do we say about jesus today what's our response to our humble king who is just and having salvation what's our response as we see jesus weeping over prideful humanity who had everything given to them to come to the right conclusion and yet were blind because of their pride and envy. As we consider these things this morning, would our hearts be soft to the Lord? Would, would, would the clothes be thrown on the ground, so to speak, to prepare the way for us to receive everything about Jesus that his word says, not just the things that are palatable for us, not just the Jesus of our own making, but the Jesus of Scripture. The Jesus of reality. That this morning we would be those who humble ourselves before Jesus and say, Jesus, you're my Lord. And maybe this morning there's someone here that that's not true for you. You know, Jesus is maybe a Lord that you've heard about, but he's not your personal Lord and Savior. You, maybe you've never made that decision. You know, maybe for some others this morning, you've received Jesus to a, a certain degree. You've prayed a prayer. Maybe it was more of a situational Savior that you wanted, but is he actually the Lord of your life? Is he seated enthroned in your heart? Or have you just given him the guest room? I want to encourage you this morning to welcome the king in full. Welcome him in full. Open-armed. Look, if you're here today and you need to make just a, even a first-time decision for Jesus to put your faith in him, to, to know that your sins are forgiven because of what Jesus has done for you. Would you stand if that's you this morning? This is not an embarrassing thing. This is the greatest decision you will ever make in your life. No one here is going to look at you weird. If anything, everyone's going to clap and rejoice at what you would do in standing to acknowledge Jesus this morning. Maybe, maybe you're that second group that I talked about. You've He's been a situational sort of savior for you, but, but not really Lord of all. Maybe he's been Lord of some, and this morning you're recognizing some things even in your own life where you've not relinquished full authority over to Jesus. You've never really fully surrendered all to him. I want to call you to a place of commitment today. If that's you, would you stand so I can pray for you? Anybody at all? Well, Lord, as we respond to your word this morning, God, we're thankful that you sent your son for us. Lord, that you love the world so dearly that you're willing to send your son knowing the cost, knowing what would happen 
that Jesus, you laid aside all the glories of heaven to come in human flesh and to live among us. He came hailed on this day as king and people crying out, save now, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But knowing that just days later, people would be shouting for your crucifixion, for you to be murdered. You did it anyways. Jesus, thank you that you are just, that you're righteous and that you have salvation, Lord. You are salvation. And Jesus, we're thankful for how you saved us. Lord, redeemed us and forgiven us and made us your own. Lord, we thank you for prophecy that bolsters our faith, gives us greater confidence. Lord, help us to be people who stand upon your word and trust you. Lord, not just trust you in some things, Lord, but to trust you in all things. Lord, knowing that you're never going to fail, you're never going to not make good on a promise that you've made to us. Lord, will we sing these songs of praise now to you? Because, Lord, you've done mighty works in our lives. Lord, we've seen, we've witnessed, we've experienced firsthand. Lord, we, would we glorify you this morning? Lord, as we take these communion elements that, Jesus, we would remember your body that was broken, your blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, as we worship you through these different elements this morning, through our songs, through the giving of our tithes and offerings, Lord, through our giving of our talents, serving you in different ways. Lord, would we also receive, Lord, all that you have for us, even in these songs as we sing to you. Lord, would you continue to pour out your spirit upon us. Lord, minister to each and every heart. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.